0: Welcome to Soul Food, a podcast ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. The following is a true story. Larry Walters led a fairly normal life as a truck driver in Southern California until the fateful day of July 2nd, 1982. On that day, Larry turned himself into a legend. You see, ever since he was a boy, Larry had dreamed of flying. But the U.S. Air Force had turned him down from becoming a pilot due to his bad eyesight. After he was discharged from the military, he would sit in his backyard and and watch the jets fly overhead. It was torture to a man who felt the need to fly. One day, he could stand it no longer. So he hatched a scheme while sitting outside in his Sears lawn chair. He went out and purchased 45 weather balloons from an Army-Navy surplus store and then tied them to his lawn chair, which he dubbed the Inspiration One. He then filled the four-foot diameter balloons with helium. Then he strapped himself into the lawn chair with some sandwiches, a six-pack of Miller Lite, and a pellet gun. He figured he would pop a few of the mini balloons when it came time to descend. Larry's plan was to sever the anchor and lazily float up to a height of about 30 feet where he'd be above his backyard where he could enjoy flying for a few hours of flight before gracefully coming back down to earth. But unfortunately... Larry knew a lot more about truck driving than he did about physics, and so things didn't work out quite as he had planned. When his friends cut the cord anchoring the lawn chair to his Jeep, he did not lazily float up to just 30 feet. Instead, he streaked into the L.A. sky as if shot from a cannon, pulled by the lift of 42 helium balloons holding 33 cubic feet of helium each. He didn't level off at 100 feet. He didn't level off at 1,000 feet. After climbing and climbing, he finally leveled off at 16,000 feet. At this height, he couldn't feel like he could take the risk of shooting any of the balloons unless he unbalanced the load and really find himself in trouble. So he stayed there, cold and frightened, with his sandwiches and his six-pack for more than nine hours, three miles above the ground. He eventually crossed the primary approach corridor of the LAX airport. Imagine the surprise of the air traffic controller when she was informed by Transworld and Delta Airlines pilot that they had just passed a man floating in his lawn chair. They probably thought he was a lunatic, or in this case, a balloonatic. (laughs) Eventually, Larry gathered enough nerve to shoot a few of the balloons and slowly descended back to earth. Unfortunately, though, the hanging tethers got caught in a power line and blacked out an entire Long Beach neighborhood. But finally, Larry got back on the ground, where he was arrested by waiting members of the LAPD. As he was led away in handcuffs, a reporter, dispatched to cover the daring feat, asked him why he had done it. Larry replied nonchalantly, well, a man just can't sit around. I think Peter would have understood Larry Walters. After Jesus' resurrection, there seems to be a time gap between the meeting with Thomas and chapter 21. And during that time, Peter can't just sit around, so he decides to go fishing. But before we get into that, look at verse 26 with me. Eight days later, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas was with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be to you. Then he said to Thomas, place your finger here and see my hands, and take your hand and put it into my side, and do not continue in disbelief, but be a believer. Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, have you now believed? Blessed are they who do not yet see and still believe. Thomas was definitely out of line with his attitude, yet Jesus came down to his level as he always does. He appeared to Thomas and said, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. The Lord met Thomas at his point of doubt and weakness because he knew that Thomas's error was connected to his profound love for the Lord. In patient compassion, he gave Thomas the empirical proof that he had demanded. How gracious Our God is. We have no right to demand anything from him. Yet he who has created us and who has died to redeem us will stoop to provide what we need. I love that Jesus immediately gave attention to the neediest man in that room. I am comforted by the Lord's gentle approach, even when I am completely at fault. How gracious the Lord is to stoop to our level of experience in order to lift us up where we ought to be. If you think about it, the Lord granted Gideon the test of faith in the fleece, and he also granted Thomas his request as well. I long to become more like Jesus in this area. I long to be able to balance truth and compassion. It seems to me that Christians usually err On one side or the other. Makes me think of the Andy Griffith Show. In one unforgettable episode, Andy has to be out of town for the day, so he reluctantly leaves Barney in charge. When he returns, he finds Barney standing in front of the courthouse grinning from ear to ear. The streets seem unusually quiet and Andy breathes a sigh of relief. Apparently, Barney has succeeded in keeping the peace of Mayberry. But Andy's about to get a big surprise. When they step inside the courthouse, he discovers that Barney has half of the town locked up in jail. Good law-abiding citizens, including the mayor and even Aunt B, Bee, have been arrested for everything from jaywalking to littering. Andy is horrified, of course, not to mention the good law-abiding citizens. But Barney is just beaming with pride. He sees no problem in this. As far as he is concerned, justice was served in every single case. We chuckle at certain silliness like that, but isn't the world really full of Barney Fice? Isn't the world full of good people who mean well but are far too rigid? They know all the rules, frontwards and backwards, but they don't have an ounce of real understanding. On the other hand, the Andes in this world are far too few in number. They are the people who always seem to be cutting others some slack and giving them the benefit of the doubt and offering whatever encouragement they can to help them on the way. Now look, I know that sometimes we have to lovingly confront people over their sin. All I'm saying is that when we have to do that, let's do it as lovingly as possible as we can and always with the hope of restoration. Thomas here is going to answer one of the strongest words of worship in the entirety of the scripture when he says, my Lord and my God. This is proof of the deity of Christ as he is going to accept the worship of, of Thomas. You see, when Peter went to the house of Cornelius, Cornelius fell at his feet. Stand up, said Peter. I'm a man also. When the people of Lystra started worshiping Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas ripped their clothes and said, stop. We are men just like you. When John fell down before even an angel in the book of Revelation, the angel said, don't do that. I'm but a fellow servant. Paul, Peter, and the angel all refused to be worshipped. Regardless of what any of the occults say, Jesus accepted this proclamation of deity for one reason and one reason only, and that is he is God Almighty. Look at verse 30 with me. So then many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The life and ministry of Jesus Christ were simply too rich and full for any writer, even an inspired one, to give a complete record. But a complete record is not necessary. All of the basic facts are there for us to read and consider. There is sufficient truth in the Bible for any sinner to believe and be saved. D.A. Carson appropriately unifies this thought when he writes, John's purpose is not academic. He writes in order that men and women may believe certain propositional truth, the truth that the Christ, the Son of God, is Jesus, the Jesus whose portrait is drawn in this gospel. But such faith is not an end in itself. It is directed toward the goal of personal eschatological salvation, that by believing it, you may have life in His name. This is the purpose of the entire book, and this is the heart of the Christian message and the Christian mission. Verse 31 says that by believing we can have life in His name. And keep in mind that eternal life is not just endless time, for even lost people are going to live forever in hell. Eternal life means the very life of God that can be experienced today. It's much more a quality of life than it is a quantity of time. It is a spiritual experience of heaven on earth today. The Christian does not have to die to have this eternal life. He possesses it today in Christ. And don't we desperately need that in this culture that we live in? Look, I know that being a Christian is becoming increasingly more unpopular. And I know that there are those of us in here who love him, who still wet our pillows with our tears sometimes. But it will be worth it all if we keep looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. I read this week about a man named Jolie who ran a 150 mile ultra marathon through the Sahara Desert. It makes me thirsty just saying that. His wife Allison had died of cancer about 18 months before that, and his run was raising money for the American Cancer Society. After just the first day of those brutal conditions, a number of the runners had already been airlifted out. He reached the 80 mile mark, and the cause of the heat the soles of his shoes blew out, which I didn't even know was possible. So he had very little protection as he was running through the Sahara Desert. His feet became very blistered, and every step was excruciatingly painful. But when he finished the race, four days later, he was asked how he was able to endure through such pain and exhaustion. He said, I thought about Allison a lot. This is nothing compared to what she went through. You know, my friends, that kind of perspective tends to put the mind where it should be. When you're tired and ready to give up, think about Jesus and then say to yourself, this is nothing compared to what he went through. And keep on running your race because the finish line gets a little closer every day. Let's look at chapter 21, verse 1. After these things, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, who was called Didymus, Nathaniel of Canaan and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, We're also coming with you. They went out and got into the boat. And that night they caught nothing. Well, after almost five years, we have come to the epilogue of John's gospel. This is the final chapter in this glorious study presenting Jesus Christ as the Son of God. But to many people, this epilogue seems as though it's been tacked on, for in chapter 20, concluding with the resurrection of Jesus Christ, John signs off by saying... These things were written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing that you might have life through his name. Now, you have to admit, that does seem like a perfectly logical conclusion to this gospel presentation. Yet, John goes on to tell one more story. Why is that? Let me suggest a couple of reasons. Firstly, John 21 provides a validation of ministry. You see, although Peter and John would go on to travel together in ministry, there would be those who would question Peter's ministry due to his denial of the Lord previously. John seems to write this epilogue, including the final story, to let us know that our God, being the God of the second chance, that Peter's ministry was particularly and singularly commissioned by the Lord. John did not want to end his gospel without telling the readers that Peter has been restored to his apostleship. And apart from the information in this chapter, we would wonder why Peter was so prominent in the first 12 chapters of the book of Acts. Secondly, John 21 provides a correction of a misunderstanding. John had another purpose in mind. He wanted to refute the foolish rumor that had spread around among the believers that John would live until the return of the Lord. And we're going to see John address this near the end of the chapter. But John is going to make it clear that the Lord's words had been greatly misunderstood. So chapter 21, though, does begin with a small sense of confusion. You see, when the followers of Jesus buried their Messiah, they buried their fondest expectations with him. But now he has reappeared, but he's not always around anymore. This long period of those quiet times undoubtedly became an eerie state of limbo for them. The Messiah died, but he's no longer dead. Jesus would commune with them on a remarkably intimate level at times, but before the coming of the Holy Spirit, they were without the daily leadership that they had become used to during those three years. The coming kingdom was not to be what they had all expected it to be, and so for them it remained a fluid and unsure future. One thing I love is, despite all of that, they are still together. As the end approaches, we are going to learn that our family of faith will be the one that is going to increasingly become more important to us Our brothers and sisters in the persecuted countries have known this for a very long time. So here we find them in Galilee, where everyone knew them, and they also knew that they had went off to follow Jesus. But they are not scattering as we might have thought they would, but they are still holding together as if they were still a special company with a unique bond among them. What can account for this? Alexander McLaren writes, There is only one explanation. Jesus Christ had risen from the dead. That drew them together once more. You cannot build a church on a dead Christ and of all the proofs of the resurrection. I take it that there is none that is harder for an unbeliever to account for. In harmony with this hypothesis, that the simple fact that Christ's disciples held together after he was dead and they presented a united front to the world. If you notice, the names of Peter and Thomas, which appear in the first and second positions of order, are obviously significant. Thomas was the doubting disciple to whom Jesus had appeared, and whose story was told just before this. And Peter is a denier who is going to be recommissioned to surface in the verses immediately following this. You know, when I read that, can we miss the point that the church is made up of those who are doubters, deniers, and sinners of many different varieties, but who have been brought to faith by Christ and have had their sins forgiven. These are the people who do Christian work. They are just normal people with all the failings that we are prone to. They are not fictitious characters of superhuman faith and fortitude. Christianity is far more comprised of Clark Kent's than Supermen's. The opening event of this chapter, which focuses on an all-night fishing expedition by the apostolic band, is going to be a living parable of how the Lord will relate to his servants as they toil in this world. Of course, at the time, the disciples had no idea that they were actors in a spiritual drama. One author captures this beautifully. He writes, There along the beach is the place where the four of them were called from their nets three short years ago. On the other side is the green grass where the thousands were fed. Behind it is a steep slope down where the devil possessed Herd Rush. And there, over the shoulder of the hill, is the road that leads up to Cana, from which the little village of one of the group had come. Well, as usual, Peter's inability to sit still is going to help to create the stage. The smell of the sea and the addictive rhythm of the lapping water must have just been too much for Peter. Finally, blurted out to his companions, I'm going out to fish. And the other disciples immediately voiced their approval. It is interesting that seven of the twelve disciples that Jesus called were fishermen. I find it noteworthy that Jesus seemed to be inclined towards choosing fishermen To be his disciples. Why? Maybe because fishermen know by nature that they have to persevere through both calm seas and stormy weather. The same is true of any kind of ministry. If you want to serve the Lord, you must learn to serve him as Paul would later tell Timothy, in season and out of season. Whether the sun is shining or the trials are abounding... We must be like fishermen who, regardless of the weather, make their way to the sea. In verse 3, Peter announces, I'm going fishing. There are two two schools of thought concerning this. Was Peter right or was Peter wrong in deciding to go back to fishing? John did not explain why Peter decided to go fishing, and Bible students are not in agreement in their suggestions. I'm going to give you both opinions. First, there are those who are convinced that Peter was in the right to do this. They say, what sent them back? It was not doubt or despair because they had seen the risen Christ. Some claim that he was perfectly within his rights, that he needed to still pay his bills, and the best way to get money was to go back to fishing. Why sit around idle? Get busy? It's very like Peter that he should have been the one to suggest filling an hour of the waiting time to perform manual labor. Peter thought the best thing that they could do until Jesus came back was to get back to work, and many people think he was sensible and right in thinking so. The second camp, of which I'm a part, says Peter was wrong to go back. How come? The main reason I believe that is because of the fact that not only did Jesus not bless their fishing trip, I think he caused it to fail. I think that the disciples' unsuccessful experience of something they knew how to do very well was a lesson from the Lord about their inability to go back to their former lives. There's nothing wrong with fishing. It's a respectable profession. Not to brag, but I am quite the fisherman myself. As long as the creek is so stocked with starving fish that you're stepping on them. You can ask Junior about that. But this was not what the Lord had called them to do. They were chosen to be fishers of men, And having left those nets and followed him, there's now no going back. Fishing is great if God calls you to be a fisherman. But if he has called you to be something else, you're just going to be spinning your wheels. You're never going to look back and be satisfied with your life. Listen to these words from the late author Leonard Wolfe. He writes, I see clearly that I have achieved practically nothing. World history and the human anthill would be exactly the same as it is if I would have played ping-pong instead of serving on committees and writing books. I have to make a rather ignominious confession that I must in a long life have ground through hundred and fifty to 200,000 hours of perfectly useless work. I don't want that to be me. And I don't think you want that to be you either. Whether God has called you to preach, or to work at a secular job, or to be a godly parent or friend, we will never be satisfied with anything less. So Peter was an impulsive man of action, and not given to standing idly for, for very long. But I don't think he was suggesting that they just do some recreational fishing to pass the time. But rather he was declaring that he was returning to his former livelihood. Now in John 16:32 Jesus predicted that the disciples would abandon him when he told them, Behold an hour is coming and has already came for you to be scattered each one to his own home. That word home was added by the translators. The Greek text reads simply scattered each to his own. And what that means it comprises one's home, property, possessions and affairs. So Peter and the disciples go out fishing on the lake. The text deliberately tells us that it was Peter's idea. Maybe Peter had even thought, even though the resurrection has occurred, the failure is just too great. His destiny is lost, and he will go back to his old identity and vocation. And so he tries to go back to the only thing he knows apart from Christ but it just doesn't work anymore. And isn't that what we've found those times when we have tried to go back? It's just not the same. It just doesn't work any longer, and we continually come up empty. Do you know what that is? It's the tender mercy of God not allowing us any satisfaction apart from himself. And he uses that very thing to drive his little sheep back into the flock. Romans 2 4 says, Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and restraint and patience, not knowing that it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance? But something else to consider is when Peter went fishing, he took other men with him. If he was wrong, then they were wrong too. And it's always a sad thing when a believer leads others astray. Just know that we all have a sphere of influence. And others are always watching us, whether we realize it or not. Anyway, I'm of the belief that perhaps Peter's impulsiveness and self-confidence was revealing themselves again. He was sincere, and he had worked hard. But there were no results. And I thought, how like some believers in their service of the Lord. They sincerely believe that they are doing God's will, but their labor is in vain. They are serving without direction from the Lord, and so they cannot expect blessing from the Lord. So what I would like to close with this morning is for us to examine ourselves and see where we truly are with the Lord. There are a lot of things in this life that I don't understand. The one thing I've become sure of is that following Christ is the only way to have him purpose and satisfaction in this life and joy and bliss in the next. But beyond all that, we should give him our lives and serve him solely because he alone is worthy of that devotion. Many years ago, in a little English village of Brackenwaite, there lived a quiet and lonely man named William Dixon. His wife had died many years before, and he had recently also lost his son. Dixon could often be seen sitting by his window, watching the world go by, and smiling at the happy families on the street. One day he looked out, though, and his neighbor's house was on fire. Other neighbors were already gathering and scrambling for water and shouting for help. Dixon ran out and joined them just as an elderly woman was poured from the flames. Who else is inside? Someone shouted above the commotion. My little grandson, the old woman gasped through smoke-filled lungs. He is upstairs and he is trapped. The people just groaned, knowing that the stairway was now completely impassable. But William Dixon hurried to the front of the house and found an iron drainage pipe that was running up the wall. And taking hold of it, he pulled himself upward toward the window and found the terrified boy. He scooped up the child and scrambled back to the ground. A few days later, the grandmother succumbed to her injuries, leaving the little boy an orphan with no home or with no guardian. So the village held a hearing to determine his fate. When the meeting was called to order, two volunteers came forward. One, a very good citizen, was answered, answered all the standard questions and gave the assurance that he would provide a good home for the boy. The second volunteer was William Dixon, the rescuer. He said few words, but he didn't have to. His hand spoke for him. So they were bandaged. The hard iron pipe he had forced to climb had burned them severely. When it came to the vote... The man with the scarred hands went home with the orphan, a father once more. His love, everyone agreed, was written on his hands. Very much like that, but in a much greater way. The love of Jesus Christ was also written on his hands. The two hands that were stretched out and nailed to a cross, where they flowed with the blood that indelibly wrote his love for all of us throughout eternity. So I urge you, give him your life today, whether in salvation or recommitment. Let us pray. Lord, you are truly the lover of our souls. And it is so easy, Lord, we hear the siren call of trying to go back to our old life sometimes. Because the Christian life is hard. But Lord, it is the only life, as your word said, that is truly life. And even though we have hard times and tribulations and all these things, they are still far better going through those things with you than trying to go back to the pig slop of the old world, which never satisfied us to begin with, or we wouldn't have got saved in the first place. So, Lord, if anyone in here is unsaved or anyone that watches this on YouTube, I pray that today would be the day that they would turn their hearts to you. And Lord, of those of us who need maybe sanctification, those of us, Lord, whose hands are hung down and need encouragement, amazingly, Lord, you are the God of all those things. I pray you would be to each person what they need. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.